Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is John Van Lunen, and you are listening to Treasures of the Outer Banks, the podcast that celebrates the people and places that make this beach special. In this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Clark Twitty. Clark is the author of a book called Outer Banks Visionaries, Building North Carolina's Oceanfront. This book explains how the Outer Banks went from a sleepy coastal oceanfront to a thriving vacation destination that has become the crown jewel of the East Coast. It didn't happen by accident, and Clark Twitty lines up the people and events that came together to create the perfect confluence. Clark Twitty did a great job of researching this period in time, and you'll understand this when you hear his knowledge of the subject. Our conversation touches on some of the places where innovative ideas came to fruition and who the people were that executed them. Sit back and enjoy as we talk about the Outer Banks and how it became such a popular destination. For reasons we will begin to uncover, the 1980s saw a different tide begin to arrive, and it is here that our story truly begins. This decade marked an inflection point for the entire region, and the beach's economic current was simply never again the same. And that is from Outer Banks Visionaries, Building North Carolina's Oceanfront from with Clark Twitty. Clark Twitty is with, with me right now. Thanks for sitting down with me, Clark. John, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Um, this this book speaks to me because I first came down here in the 80s and it was a pretty sleepy town. Um, came back in the 90s as a windsurfer. It took a whole new yeah. meaning for me. Yep. Um, and then uh, my wife and I, well, my wife and I, we spent our honeymoon, I call it our honeymoon working summer. Yeah. We got married and we spent the entire summer here working on the Outer Banks in 94. Yeah. It got in our blood. And mm-hmm. we came back in 97, and we've been here for 25 years. Congratulations. Never, no regrets. Never oh. looked back. You know? okay. so, so your book, even though I was, in the 80s, I was still, I, I knew nothing about the Outer Banks. But you, you say that the 80s was kind of the big turning point. Um, and, and you kind of evidenced that with, you know, the economy and just some of the big ideas, the big things that were happening uh, back then. Go ahead and expand on that a little bit, please. I think it's... So as we think about this, number one, I go back to this great book by David McCullough, and he wrote a book about the American Revolution, but it was called 1776, and it was a very consequential year in the Revolution. So many things happened in that one year, and I love that idea. So I began to think about the Outer Banks in 1986, and there were a lot of things that were happening, and as you point out, the book is really one part history, one part economics, and then one part people, the people who were here. So as you know, we go back to 1986, the second half of the Carter administration, the prime interest rate was 21.5%, the highest ever. To Jimmy Carter's eternal credit, he made a couple of appointments that he knew were controversial, perhaps most consequentially Paul Volcker, who shocked the economy and raised interest rates to combat what was essentially stagflation going back even to the LBJ era. And then when he raised those rates, probably cost Jimmy Carter re-election. To his credit, he did the right thing. Ronald Reagan gets re-elected. By 1986, Reagan just re-elected the signature program of his second administration was a financial piece, the Tax Reform Act. Interest rates at that time had been cut in half from 21.5% to under 10%. In 1986, so you think about that, in just a couple of years, money, remember interest rates reward savers, penalize borrowers. So interest rates come down, makes it more attractive to borrow. So you have an environment in which capital is cheaper broadly. 
Number two, you have this interesting thing on the Outer Banks where you've get you got Dick Brindley up in Kerala, Bob Oaks in Nags Head, the Ramada, Jane Webster, Sterling Webster. All of those things happened at the same time, the same year precisely. And then you see the begin to see the rise of Mark Bassnight. And yeah. up through being elected Board of Transportation, rising to the Senate Appropriations Committee, and Senator Bassnight. If we had to summarize his career, public policy is economic development. And those things happened at one time. And from that perspective, that to me was the blueprint for what the Outer Banks would become. Walmart got here in 1992, followed that. Taylor Sugg, the gentleman who did the forward, moved to the Outer Banks in 1992. The Outer Banks Mall, roughly the middle of the 80s. The Dare Center, Belk and whatnot, late 80s. A lot of things happened on the Outer Banks, to your point, in just a small period of time, and it's that blueprint right. that it, are the anchors of what so much of the Outer Banks has become today. And it's funny, you call it a blueprint, but it wasn't pl- a planned blueprint. It just The no. pieces just kind of came together, you know? I hope I reflect some admiration for these entrepreneurs. It turns out entrepreneur is a French word, and it means to build something from nothing. Right. So, so many of us, myself, are business people today. But those entrepreneurs truly built something from nothing. Right. So one part that I think is really fascinating is this entrepreneurial current yeah. that was happening at that time. These were remarkable people who built not only a business, but built a market. And yeah. that's remarkable. Yeah. The vision and the, the courage. Absolutely. Just throw something out there with no real you know, guarantees. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it was just a plot of sand for some of these people. And a lot of people at the time said, this is crazy, this has never happened, these are barren sand dunes. If you and I somehow would have been magically transported back into 1982, the year the Community Foundation was started, and said, in 20 years, the Outer Banks will be a glittering vacation capital in America, no one would have believed right. us. It's not unlike the Wright brothers. The Wright brothers were entrepreneurs. Now, obviously, at a much larger scale. But people said that will never happen either. And then less than 100 years later, economically, the same group of people built something from nothing. Right. And I thought that was a story worth being remembered. That's a good point. And the Wright brothers, like the Wright brothers, they did it with such meager resources. Absolutely. Two guys and a mechanic. And a shed. I mean, I mean, they did it with nothing. <laughs> I, think, I love the Wright brothers, as we all do. David McCullough wrote the book. There's yeah, my link to book. 1776. The Wright brothers, I think, are rightly famous for being inventors, for being scientists, aviation, that kind of thing. I think they are not as well remembered as being entrepreneurs. Right. But they very much were. So in yeah. a sense, their entrepreneurial story is one that I think our entrepreneurs ride by every day and can be inspired by. Just because people say it will never happen doesn't mean that's true. Right. There's a section in the book, uh, and I'm just spitting out a few parts of the book. Feel free to buy the book. Where can we buy the book? You can buy anywhere you'd like to. It's on all the national booksellers, but to your point, uh, it's also most importantly available at local booksellers. This is a local story, and we love our local audiences. Excellent. But thank you for even bringing that up. (laughs) Um, Relative affordability. This is kind of a a, a title of a subsection of one of the chapters. Relative affordability along the coast. Yeah. Dollars that went further. And I think, you know, that was a big attraction for Huge people. attraction. You know, you could spend a lot of money and try to get a little place in Ocean City, Maryland, or you could spend a little bit of money and get a big 
piece of Absolutely. land, relatively speaking, on the Outer Banks. That the was outer, huge. Only those early entrepreneurs remember that. Those of us, myself included, who are here in what I'll call the modern era, don't remember that. Right. It is not, shouldn't be lost in our memory that the Outer Banks at that time was considered cheap relative oh, to yeah. Virginia Beach, Sandbridge, Ocean City, up the Atlantic, and then down the coast. The Outer Banks was a bargain. And in a way, that's what unlocked Duck and Kerala. Duck and Kerala yeah. were cheaper than Nags Head. Yeah. So people who love Nags Head would say, well, where can I go get the Nags Head experience, but not quite the Nags Head cost? And right. they would come to Duck. And then they would, oh, oh my gosh, Kerala is even cheaper. Yeah. And those kinds of things. We don't think about that today, but at the time, very affordable. And then keeping in mind what interest rates were doing and that kind of thing, the Tax Reform Act slashed personal income taxes in 1986. Americans typically felt a little more wealthy in the mid-'80s than they had for several decades leading up to that. Yeah, personal story. We, My wife and I have been living here about, I don't know, five, ten years and you could still get property up in Corova Beach in the teens. Yep. And they were disappearing. Yep. So I, I talked to my friend Bob Evans, and I said, Bob, you know, get me on a piece of property up there for cheap. He found something awesome up on Sand Dollar. It was a double lot. Yep. And it wasn't in the teens, but it wasn't that expensive, $30,000, $35,000. Yep. And we hung on to it for about 10 years, hoping that that bridge would be built. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and maybe we can touch upon that bridge a little we'll bit later. But... Um, if that bridge never came, we kind of needed the money to do something else, so we finally bailed on it. You're but. not alone. I mean, I, I've, the old maps of Duck in World War II, that's why the Duck Research Pier is here. It used to be a bombing range. Right. And the old maps during that time had Duck on the map that says Wasteland. Is that right? <laughs> and that wasn't that long ago. That's why it was a bombing yeah. range. Well, you know, you, you talk about that. On that note... So my wife and I would come here in uh, 94 to work for the summer. I was working right up the road behind the Sunset Grill. And, um, and people were like, yeah, just 10 years ago, yeah. the road stopped here. What? Absolutely. In 85, the road stopped right here? Absolutely. How is it possible? Yep. It used to be a Coast Guard base, and then the road ended, and then it was privately owned. We don't think about it. Wait, there's a Coast Guard base right here in Duck? Used to be, and back in time, there was a little facility right where the old Winks would be, kind yep. of that commercial heart, kind of where the water tower is. Yep. Way back in time, there was a small Coast Guard installation. Is that right? There. Absolutely. And then there was the famous Duck Club. And the Duck Club became kind of the capital of Duck, what is today Duck Village Booksellers and Duck Village Coffee. Okay. There's an old called the Powder Ridge Club. And right. that's what was the long-standing home of Duck wow. for years and years. But that's why there was a road there, and that's why the road stopped there. Is that right? And everything further north was privately owned. There was a guard gate that came down, development. Right. That kind the, of thing. The guard gate definitely blows me away, too. And yep. by the way, uh, since we're kind of on that topic... Um, episode three, I interviewed a man named Wikey Wise. And Wikey Wise, you've heard of him? No, I haven't. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, Wikey Wise was a kid here in the 50s. Yeah. And so his he had ties, family ties in Nags Head and in Nags Head Woods. But his uncle, I think, got a job up at the Whalehead Club. So yep. they, they were constantly like going back and forth, not on a daily basis, but every couple of days or weeks, they might go back and forth. And his uh, aunt almost got bombed while he was in the car driving through the bombing range and duck. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> How crazy is that? And we forget that. Why is there a duck research pier in the middle of this vacation capital? Right. It was here, not unlike Oceana up in Virginia Beach. 
it was here long before any of this other stuff was. Right. And it was a bombing range. Right. Because it's so close to the major naval installations up in Norfolk. Right. That is so amazing. So you, you, you uh, profile several of these dreamers, we'll call them. Um, and let's see. One of the guys was Dick Brindley. Dick Brindley, absolutely. And, Mr. Kerala Light. And it's just funny, it's fascinating that he kind of practiced by creating a community in Duck called North Point. And I guess it was a success, and he learned Absolutely. some lessons and said, we could do bigger and better up in Kerala. Absolutely. A lot of these early entrepreneurs, one of the things they would do that I noticed is they would go get proof of concept on a small scale, relatively smaller. North Point was kind of northern Duck in between what is downtown Duck and the Sanderling. Right. And he figured out, hey, I can custom build this for vacation homes. And you might remember the pool in North Point is pretty far off the ocean, and it was enclosed. At that time, an enclosed pool no one had ever seen before. And then he said, hey, this really works. Where else is land cheap? Where can I do this? Kerala Light was bought at the time for a little over $3 million, 220 acres ocean to sound. But at the time, that was a lot of money. And then he put the pool on the ocean front. And right. Kerala Light to this day is famous for its amenities, notably that big oceanfront pool complex. Dick learned that from North Point and then applied it and figured out amenities were important. Bob Oaks, you might note, did the same thing at the villages of Nagshead. In fact, the oceanfront complex was one of the first things they built in that tract. Right. So these entrepreneurs were figuring out what families wanted and how they could use real estate to build value. Conventionally, if you look at the old unpainted aristocracy, not that there were swimming pools, but the oceanfront was reserved for homes. Right. Not true in the planned communities, put the amenities on the oceanfront too. And that's what some of those folks figured out. And that model, Villages of Nagshead, Kerala Light, became the dominant model. Was, was there anything else around Kerala Light? I mean, was it just a, a, an oasis up in the vast Kerala wasteland? Was, Kerala was very quiet. It had a really interesting history, obviously, mainly on the sound side with right. the duck clubs. There was a lighthouse. There was a Navy base. The Whalehead Club, obviously, had been in business for a long time. There were several small communities, Kerala and even further north going up to the Virginia line. Very quiet, very isolated, very sleepy. And when Dick Brimley thought about putting in Kerala Light, there were a lot of folks, I thought, who said, well, this is just crazy. This will never work right. at all. Much of it was also privately owned by Duck Club, so there wasn't that much property for sale. The reason it's called Whalehead, the Whalehead community in Kerala, is because it was owned by the Whalehead Club. Right. And those early Duck Clubs, the Pine Island Club, the reason it's called Pine Island, it was owned by the Pine Island Club. And these private clubs hold and own vast swaths of ocean-to-sound real estate. We don't think about how these communities came to be. Most of them were privately held. Right. And, you know, the people were probably said, you know, I could cash out now and live a nice little life with some of this money. You know, I don't blame them. And at the time, the duck clubs weren't after the oceanfront. They were after the sound side. So they didn't attach value to the oceanfront. And it was only in the late 70s, really, in the early 80s, that some of these clubs started to see, oh my gosh, the ocean front's very valuable. Look yeah. at what the Autobahn did up in the Pine yeah. Island area. And up until then, they probably didn't say, who, who would buy that? And up and until <laughs> then, it was sold for pennies on the dollar. There are Crazy. there are long stories of buying vast swaths on the Outer Banks for not that much money, relatively. Although in fairness, 
we hear those numbers and we think, oh, $3 million, you can't buy an oceanfront for that. But we have to think about inflation and whatnot. Yeah. At that time, that was a lot of money, but we look at it with the benefit of hindsight. 220 acres ocean to sound, what's the value of that today? Yeah, <laughs> crazy. Yeah, you know, um, again, going back to Waikiki Wise in episode three, he talked about, you know, that uh, aristocracy done in Nags Head, you know, they were pretty, they were renegades for developing right on the ocean. They were. Um, and, and, the, I, and the locals wouldn't even dream about living in the, They wanted to live in the woods where they were protected. And absolutely. They could, do, they could do some farming and stuff. If, you know, the original prototype for the planned community on the Outer Banks was the unpainted aristocracy. They had the general store there. The casino was there. So right. they had some on-site entertainment. Right. They had the early transportation, the ferries that would land across Jockey's Ridge and right. come over. And they were non-resident property owners. Yeah. They were seasonal residents. They lived in places like Elizabeth City and Edenton and beyond. Right. And that was the first real community on the Outer Banks was that unpainted aristocracy. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to bounce around because my brain does bounce around quite a bit. <laughs> you but, know me all too well. <laughs> but since we're talking about the northern section of the Outer Banks, um, let's talk about Corova for a little bit. because. Sure. Is, is anybody looking at Corova and saying that's going to be the next big development? You know, that's a great question. And you and I talked before we started about Ernie Bowden and his career right. and history up on the what I'll call the Curry Tuck Outer Banks. Mm-hmm. And there's long been this thought that, well, Corova is the last frontier, the four-wheel drive area, Swan Beach. Right. It is not master planned in the same way that some of the other areas on the Outer Banks were. So, for example, there's not much public property. There is a refuge. There's a lot of buffers up there, aren't there? There are. But to go build roads, for example, is actually problematic. Um, getting through federal refuges for roads is problematic. Right. So right now, there doesn't seem to be suggest much that roads are in the future. Now, if you're thinking ahead, you think, oh, if a bridge comes through, the mythical bridge, yeah. one day, then inevitably there will be roads up there. As you know, the four-wheel drive community is not particularly built out in terms of density. There is a right. lot of remaining real estate right. there. But it's unique. Short version to your question, I don't think we'll see roads in what I'll call the near term, right. the next five to ten years. Beyond that, what we've learned from this story is no one can predict the future. Yeah. I don't think that's right around the corner. Right. I think there are too many other reasons it's problematic. So, Corova, after reading the book and just hearing your answer there, Corova needs infrastructure. You can't have infrastructure if you don't have roads. No, you get into a long thought around what is, let's define infrastructure. It's roads, it's water, yeah. it's uh, transportation, emergency responders. We have seen some EMS infrastructure go in. Right. But right now, in terms of water, public utilities, and roads, I tend to think that is double-digit years away. Right. I just don't see the, the ability right now to... And then zoning is destiny. If we look at zoning, for example, in the community of the Currituck Outer Banks, there is no commercial zoning. There's one commercial activity permitted in the entirety of the Currituck four-wheel drive beaches. Is that right? And it runs with the land. It was Ernie Bowden's old hunt club. Oh. And that's why it's owned commercial, because Ernie saw to it. Everything else is residential. Long story short, there's not a big footprint for utilities. Right. And then there's not the infrastructure budget, candidly. Right. More perhaps importantly than that, a lot of the locals who are voters don't want it. Yeah. So there's this big debate that we'll touch on, I'm sure, conservation versus development, right. preservation versus that kind of thing. Right, right. 
you you bring up a good point about the locals. You know what the locals want, and I guess the only way it would change is if somebody with a lot of money owned a lot of property mm-hmm. and started, you know, shaking the branches a little bit. I think there's this great saying that you either change when you see the light or feel the heat. And I worry at some point there could be a Katrina situation. If I'm for the Mid-Curry-Tuck Bridge for one reason, it's Hurricane Katrina. We have a public safety obligation to respond and provide infrastructure for response. I think that will be the push over time, but it certainly won't be next year, five years, ten years from now. There will much more density will be required to lead to those kinds of roads and things. And, And right now, given this economic cycle, I don't see that over the next 10 years. Right. Um, real quickly, you brought up uh, your other book, Memories of the Currituck Outer Banks, as told by Ernie Bowden. Ernie Bowden was a legend that lived and farmed in the 4x4 four, four four area, the uh, the uh, area of Corova Beach. I just call it all Corova Beach, by the yep. way. And uh, just he, interesting character. Um, but you just said something, and if we go down a path that we shouldn't go path down, just let me know. But you said something, he's got commercial property there. Do his descendants own this now? Could they be bought out? I mean, could it be developed? No. The Well, I certainly can't speak for his descendants, so let me reserve their right to sure. do whatever they want with, with the property they have. Right. As I understand it, there is no remaining commercial property up there, and the former Bowden Club, which was the Coast Guard station, the Washwood station, okay. um, is no longer in the Bowden family. Oh, okay. Um, but that's why it exists, and the, the zoning runs with the land. And that has been controversial over time and what's the future and there have been pushes for hotels and some other things. There's been some litigation around that. Yeah. As it stands right now, none of that has amounted to swinging hammers right. or anything like that. Right. So, But yep, character. And I will say, Ernie Bowden, I asked him one time, and Ernie, as you know, was 94, 95, 96, memory as sharp as attack, and knew more about the Craytuck Outer Banks than any other living person. Wow. And I asked him one time, do you wish you would have done anything differently? And he said, of course I do. I could never have imagined, and neither could anyone else, what it would become. So when we divided lots and built canals and things like that, we simply couldn't have imagined. And I think that's a telling thought, not only for the Currituck Outer Banks, but for the Outer Banks. Those folks who were in the zoning business in the 70s and 60s and 80s, Again, if we would have said, do you know what this will become in 20 or 30 years, in the context of their lived experience, they would have been less surprised to see an alien land than they would to say, oh, in the next several years, this will be a billion-dollar economy. They said, no way. So so what are you saying he was regretting, that maybe he should have... Relooked at the zoning laws? He would have done. I, I Obviously, he's passed away now. The way I interpreted that was that he would have thought differently about lots. He would have thought differently about utilities. He would have thought differently about the way that that land should have been composed right. in terms of a concept. But at the time, I think Ernie was an eighth-generation Currituck Outer Banker. Wow. It had been a collection of small, barren sand dunes for hundreds of years. There was nothing in their experience to suggest it would be anything other than that. Right. So I thought when they began to develop lots, I think that to them was a radical idea. Yeah. And the idea that today it is what it is. They might have just thrown it up against the wall and it's like, yeah, just, you know, let's just put something on paper. We're never going to have to deal with this. It'll never get to that point. I think there's probably some truth to that. <laughs> you know? And they said, well, one day, or you know what, if we ever have to deal with that problem, it'll be a great thing. 
Um, right. You know, Ernie's mother died in the Ash Wednesday storm, oh, yeah. mainly because of a lack of any kind of awareness they had about storm planning. Right. So that wasn't that long ago. So we've gone in Ernie's lifetime from losing his mother in the Ash Wednesday storm to what it is today. Ernie's memory, that wasn't that long. So we think about, well, what has it become today? That's how far it's come. Yeah. So I think that's worth thinking about in terms of placing his experience in context. Right. Where should we go from here? Um, well, if you want to, for your readers, we can talk about some of the controversial stuff. Oh, we, let's we, go. we can talk about <laughs> over tourism. I know there's this, been this real sense of what is the Outer Banks. In fact, part of the genesis of this book in reality was when the bridge opened in 2020, it became apparent pretty quickly that the Outer Banks had changed forever. And I think there was a sense of there's no going back. Will it return to normal or is this the new normal? Right. And that's what led us, I think, as we wrestle as a community with all these questions about what have we become and where are we going, perhaps temperamentally, my thought was the only way to understand where we're going is to understand how we got where we are. And that question was the genesis of this. Right. And the day it, the idea occurred was the day the bridge reopened. Right. And um, you, I think you said something in the book to the extent of we're looking at past problems to, or past situations to see if they replicate themselves and can we learn from those situations. Absolutely. And so will we see another big development boom? Will we see population radically increase like right. it did in the 80s and the 90s? Right. Will we see another big infrastructure push? Mark Bassnight built the bridges. And to your point, we probably have another big infrastructure push out there. Is the political environment the same? Can we replicate that? Will we see another thing like that? So we're looking for patterns yeah. and we're looking for cycles. Right. You know, I was, I had, uh, one of my podcasts was with John Wright, Sanctuary Vineyards. Yep. And he's, I was surprised to, to hear how, um, you know, educated he was on the, uh, the, the doings and the functions of Kurtuck County over on the mainland there. Yep. And he, you know what he said? The big thing was, um, you know, these amenities, these, uh, absolutely, the, the, you know, the support, you know, if, if we want to start housing people over in Kurtuck County, Kurtuck County is going to have to, uh, absolutely. step up to the plate and start building, you know, infrastructure that'll support, you know, that kind of housing. That's it. And so I think what made those entrepreneurs, those really risky bets and those entrepreneurs, what made that story unique and worth telling is, at the same exact time you had Mark Bass Knight emerge and be able to spend money on infrastructure. So they would say, hey, I've got Corolla Light. Mark Bass Knight could say, I've got a bridge. And if you look at when the bridges and the roads, when the road was widened in Lower Currituck, when the new bridges were budgeted and started right. to be built, it was all about the same time. Yeah. Because Mark knew, I've got to get people here, that four-lane highway up to the Virginia line, Mark Bass Knight. Yeah. All these things happened about the same time. And that's what led to Walmart. Yeah. And that's what led to all these things. And oh, by the way, the hospital yeah. and things like that. We didn't used to have any of that. And all of these things became sustainable when we got the jobs 
that allowed the population to grow and the jobs supported the tourism community that came across those beautiful bridges. Yeah. So sequentially, that's an interesting story. Yeah. You know, I'm a sports guy, so I apologize for no, the no. analogy. Let but rip. <laughs> when a team goes to a championship game or wins the championship, it's like catching lightning in a bottle. Yep. P- people don't appreciate that, but it's the only way I can explain it. Yep. Just all the right things have to line up. The dominoes have to line up just perfectly. And according to your book, that's exactly what happened in 1986. I think that's a great analogy. Yeah, absolutely a great analogy because you had the entire, you had also had the right environment. The game was at the right stage where yeah. that kind of thing would win. You go back NBA, the Bulls in that time. You go back to the dynasties. Yeah, the game was reflective of the players at that time. Yeah. You know, would my customers were here ready, they had money in their pocket. Absolutely. Bass Knight was building bridges. And you had entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs aren't necessarily longtime Fortune 500 business operators. Entrepreneurs are builders. But as we know, builders and operators sometimes is a very different personality. So right. even using your analogy, looking at team composition, we had the right composition of builders at that time. Right. So let's um, let's start transitioning into Mark Bass Knight. Uh, you have a, a subsection about him. Uh, the Great Connector, a powerful political will emerges. And from the book, Mark Bass Knight was simply a phenomenon. In a place fa- famous for storms, he was, in his own right, a political hurricane that reshaped the landscape of the region. It was, on meeting him, as if some combination of the rurally imperious Lyndon Baines Johnson and the fortrightly humble Harry S. Truman had together somehow slipped into the shoes of Senator Bass Knight as he began his ascent in North Carolina's General Assembly. And, you know, it always kind of amazes me. I unfortunately did not get to meet him. I really, I really wish I did. But it's, it's amazing that this just regular guy from the Outer Banks just climbed the ladder of North Carolina politics to a point where he was moving and shaking and making things happen and really going to bat for the people of the Outer Banks. Absolutely. The book talks about this, and you know it. The road to Raleigh, once you move through Columbia and you get to Plymouth, is that four-lane highway. And the joke was that was Senator Bass Knight's driveway so that he could come and go to Raleigh as quickly as possible. And there's this great story one time of him speeding home, and he gets pulled over in a state trooper, and the state trooper comes up to the car and sees it's Senator Bass Knight and covers up his name tag and says, Senator, you're all clear. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, that was Mark Bass Knight. Yeah. And so many people have a Mark Bass Knight right. story uh, because he was, to your point, improbable, uh, relatively uneducated as we think about classical university educations right. and things like that. But Mark Bass Knight knew how to get things done. He knew how to build relationships. He knew how to wield power. He knew how to identify resources in terms of fundraising and to channel that power. This was a very different time politically. We talk about North Carolina being a Republican state. That wasn't true for 100 years. Right. This was the culmination of what had been a Democratic Party machine in North Carolina for a century. And he stood at the very height of that before we started to see the political tide shift in North Carolina. Right. A remarkable person who did a lot of good. And I honestly think probably should get some more credit for having built the infrastructure that supported the Outer Banks. The four-lane highway going down the bypass, for years that was a two-lane highway. For years, the beach road was the highway. Right. Mark Bass Knight. Jeanette's Pier, Mark Bass Knight. The Coastal Studies Institute, Mark Bass Knight. The Wanshee Seafood Park, Mark Bass Knight. 
all of these things occurred while he was in powerful political office. Right. And if you're trying to be objective, it just made the place better um, from every you know practical standpoint. It, it wasn't about it. Yes, it, it, it helped improve things uh, economically indirectly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but you know, it was so it wasn't a selfish uh, thing. It was just let's make just. Let's just make things better here. Well, I go back to context, and the book says, um, Doris Kearns Goodwin, the historian, said, to understand LBJ, you first have to understand the soil of the Texas Hill Country and how hard you had to dig to find water and how those poor folks would work every day to bring up water. And she said, if you understood that and how your back felt at the end of that day, you understood LBJ. Right. And I love that because I think to understand Mark Bassnight's desire to build the Outer Banks was when he looked at the Outer Banks as a young man, how isolated, how disconnected, and how barren, and in many cases how poor the Outer Banks really was. Oh, yeah. People, I mean, geez, how far back do you go? You know, the 50s, the 60s, people were still scratching out and living on this beach. Absolutely. You know? And like you brought up in the book, people left after World War II or right around World War II just to get better work. As they were tired of scratching out there, living on the Outer Banks. There were no jobs. Yeah. And you, you lots of stories about these early visionaries could drive down the beach road and not see anyone and because the population wasn't here, because the jobs weren't here. And that was particularly pronounced after World War II. You had this boom. A lot of the local population left because you couldn't earn a living. And Mark, to his credit, I think saw that and said, I want people to be able to live here. Right and earn a living here. And he knew roads were a huge piece. Now, in fairness to Mark, also the university system, also healthcare. So when we talk about Mark, I, I don't want to limit his contributions to sure. Eastern North Carolina. The university system in many ways reflects his he, will. He built, he built, a, he helped build a community. He did. And I think that he should. And that's huge. Yep, absolutely. Not without controversy. Strong-armed, lots of conversations about him using political will. And then since his time out of power, a lot of conversation about retribution. Really? Folks in Raleigh and Charlotte, not direct, but saying, hey, you had your time in the sun. You had Mark Bassline. It's time for us now to get that, particularly with the other party coming to political power, settling old scores. Is that right? So I think there has been, as we think about, hey, because we really haven't seen any infrastructure since Mark. And that's not an attack comment to any of our elected officials today. But if you think about when was the last major infrastructure push the Outer Banks saw, it was a long time ago. Like the bypass that you and I sit in and complain about the traffic (laughs) in was envisioned 30 years ago by folks who could never have imagined what what it's become today, the bridges and things like that. So I think it's fair to say that, hey, you guys got your time in the sun. And now, in fairness, the politics in Raleigh and Charlotte have been driven by population population's political power. The population centers of Charlotte, Raleigh, and the interstate quarter have exploded since then. So the political dynamic now is much less likely that we'll see another Mark Bass night. And again, that's not an attack. I love our elected officials on both sides of the aisle. Right. And, and I will say this, and people will say I'm an idiot, and they'll argue the point, but I'll say this. As they were developing the Outer Banks, there was a sense of community and there was a sense of responsibility to preserve the local community. You know what I'm saying? Um, there yes. was a balance there, and and also, you know, you, you and you mentioned this in the book. There was there was people that wanted to protect 
you know, our natural resources here too, which, which is very important. So, so there's some responsibility there and it's, oh, it's a tough balance. Don't yep. get me wrong. And, and we struggle with it every single day. You know, do, do I want, you know, the comforts of the city, but Absolutely. do I want to live in a semi-rural area, you know? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I think I've always seen that as I've been living here 25 years, I've seen that preservation and I think it's great. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yes. We so often talk about development, and there is this school of thought that development's a bad thing. The more we develop in one direction, and there's a great poet um, who described losing what you had and not getting what you wanted. And that's this fear that haunts so many folks who have loved the Outer Banks or lived on it for a long period of time. John Wilson, we mentioned him in the book, started Outer Banks Conservationist. Manny O'Mayor? Uh, Manny O'Mayor, what at that time was the youngest mayor in America, gotcha. as I understand it. You think about his contributions to preservation and conservation because John sensed through his genius that as the development fire began to burst forth, there had to be a corresponding conservation fire. And he was brilliant at that. So have we conserved enough? Probably not. Zoning is destiny, though. But at the same time, a lot of the conversation, or actually, I'm sorry, conservation we've seen has been reflective of a small number of people. Charles Evans, for example, Callista Baum gets a lot of the credit for laying in front of the bulldozer. Charles Evans and that team saved, I think, Jockey's Ridge. Is that right? And we'll ask him, Charles, when you did that, do you know you were saving one of the most popular visitor attractions on the East Coast and depending on what you, you measure it, the most popular state park in North Carolina? At that time, those folks probably couldn't have imagined that. Yeah. There weren't that many people there. They thought, well, we're just going to protect parts of the Outer Banks. But Jockey's Ridge today is a reflection of conservation. Right. And there are a lot of those folks out there who did that. Charles, John Wilson, and there's a wonderful collection. The worst part about writing a book about visionaries is not who you include, but who you leave out. Right. And there should be a hundred other books yep. with a hundred other people. Yep, understood. You mentioned something about you know the rest of the state. I heard a rumor a long time ago. Tell me if this is true or not. Do our... Do our tax dollars help fund stuff uh, throughout the state? I mean, yes. the, vis the visitor's tax, does that stay here or does that... That's a great question. So the answer is, it depends. Let's start okay. with the definition. Sure. When we talk about taxes, it's a combination of three things, local, state, federal. Okay. So when we think about state taxes, there is the occupancy tax. Part of that goes back to the state. Part of it stays local as we broadly think about it. So yes, do we remit a lot of tax revenue to the state of North Carolina? Absolutely. Do we get a lot of occupancy tax that is stays local? Yes, we do. In the same way that the federal taxes do the same thing and gotcha. that kind of thing. So Dare County and Currituck County generate a massive amount of tax revenue. Yeah. In fact, look at Dare County's infrastructure, Dare County's magnificent buildings, yeah. and compare that to Hyde County. Is it look at their schools. Look at the Dare County schools. They're immaculate. They're, and what, three of them are practically brand new? I mean, and then you go, you, you, you don't have to go too far west, no. and you see a totally different scenario. Well, by comparison, and this is a little dated number, recently, Dare County, I think, its annual budget was somewhere around $120, $125 million. Hyde County, by extension, about eight. Wow. And they're an adjacent neighbor. Wow. And then you get into Washington County, right. Terrell County. Yeah. Bertie County are some of the poorest counties in the state of North Carolina. Right? Yeah. So Dare County's infrastructure seems like Camelot yeah. as compared to that, and that's because of tax revenue. Right. 
And I, I've always told people, you know, we're kind of the beneficiary. Those those of us who live here full time are the beneficiaries of a lot of the great things that these tours pay for. So, yep. So uh, I, I appreciate I, the tours. It's controversial <laughs> because they they impact quality of life. But in terms of the visitor economy, the visitor economy in terms of resources has created a quality of life that is widely regarded in North Carolina as among the best in the state. North Carolina, Dare County, for example, has the highest median tax or median home price in the state. But North Carolina, time and time again, when it does most desirable places to live, Dare County's in the top two or three in every survey. Everybody wants to be in Dare County and Currituck County to an extent as well. Yeah. Although Currituck is unique in that it's the Currituck Outer Banks and mainland Currituck. Yeah. So it's of two minds in a lot of ways. Right. And so on, on that note, you know, just the tax money and the amenities and is um, is there anything we're missing here? I mean, it, you, we kind of alluded to that mid, mid-county bridge is extremely important. Um, but is there anything else that we've, you know, we've kind of outgrown the bridges, so we definitely could use another bridge. But is there anything we've, we've outgrown that we really need here? Um, I Yes. I think there is this, we have to understand, I think, as a people, that there's no going back. Yeah. So it will not be, for good and for bad, what it was. I try to imagine what the Baum family and the Daniels family and the Tillett family thought when people like me showed up. Yeah. So I try to put my own experience in context. Having said that, I so often think that the iron triangle for economic vitality in our region is healthcare, education, and housing. We've got pretty good health care, particularly looking at the hospital, particularly compared to what it was. Yeah. We've got really good education. Our education system is among the best in the state. Housing is a crisis. Yep. There is no yep. affordable housing. So when people talk about affordable housing, to me, that's invisible. Yeah. So we do have a housing crisis. And I think that's the thing that's missing. And solving it, easy to say, very hard to do. Yeah. NIM- NIMBY's undefeated. And then when I'm you, sorry, what's NIMBY? NIMBY, when you think about NIMBY means not in my backyard. Right, right, Th- right, these right. are the group of folks who want affordable housing, and it's understandable, yep. just not in their backyard. Yep. And when we look about time and time again when these developers have come forward, towns typically don't react well to that. Right. So the future of housing is probably off the Outer Banks, which is very controversial, because now you get into gentrification and what you're doing to communities, and right. that is a very controversial topic. Right. Uh, fast forwarding the book here. People, despite the economic headwinds of various market cycles, still came on vacation, meaning cash flows remained consistent, a notion that made a notion made clear in the late 80s and that still holds true today. And skipping forward, if there is one specific reason for the growth of the vacation home market overall, it is this. They perform well in and out of market cycles and people just keep coming. And I can speak to this, you know, I used to own a water sports business, so I had a pretty good pulse of, you know, traffic and flow and, and customers and stuff like that. And I remember 2008 when yep. the, the, the housing crisis just blew up in everybody's face and we were all kind of a little trepid going into the next summer. My observation, the people just kept coming. They, they had to go on vacation. And when you come to the Outer Banks on vacation, guess what? You're probably going to rent a jet ski for the kids. Absolutely. <laughs> so they kept renting jet skis from the kids. So that didn't affect anything. Um, fast forwarding to 2020, I was here, you know, riding out the pandemic, and we were all sitting on pins and needles, you yep. know, as the spring. And honestly, had the pandemic started in May or July, and Absolutely. we and, and we'd 
this beach had been locked down, I would have been Absolutely. bankrupt. I would have had to file for bankruptcy. You and a lot of <laughs> other know? folks. Uh, well, uh, it went crazy. The people, they, some people, there, there, there's a theory that, oh, well, now they have money in their pocket. And maybe some of them did, maybe some didn't. Yep. Some of them just didn't care. Someone just put on a credit card and just came out. Yep. And they came out in droves. And the people that usually would fly to Disney or the, the Caribbean, they, they came out. And, oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Here's a funny, another funny reflection is we used to say, you know, in the water sports business, you know, if we only had one more month, yeah. we'd be, everything would be <laughs> so great if we had one more month. Well, in 2020, we had one more month, and it almost killed us. <laughs> it did. 2020 was acute in so many ways, and you're absolutely right. And I think a huge part of that market that you point out was what I'll call second choicers, who would have gone to Disney or Europe or the Bahamas, who came to the Outer Banks as a second choice. Right. And I think they liked it. Yeah. And since then, it's just, it's been remarkable. But you're right. Uh, no matter what, sales prices go up and down. Yeah as a reflection of some multiples and some speculation and some investing and some value thinking, but they just keep coming, which means the cash flows for the investors, more than 50% of the homes in Dare County are owned by people who don't live here. Mm. Those cash flows are consistent yeah. and money goes where it feels safe. And when you get a consistent return, whether it's a vacation home, a bond, an equity, a treasury bill, money will come. And I think that's the story. And I feel like there's always a customer. You know, maybe one year it's it's a really broad customer, or, or in tough times, maybe it's a narrow customer. Yeah. But the customers will still find this place. And, and demographics continues to favor it. The population booms in our core markets, mid-Atlantic. Yeah. Continue to increase. I think more than a million people have moved to North Carolina in the past 10 years. That's the equivalent of Nebraska moving to North Carolina. <laughs> so there is increasing demand for what continues to be this really interesting natural environment. Right. Jumping around, because I'm really curious as to what your opinion is, and I'm not trying to throw mud at anything. No, how about it? Pirate's Cove. Yep. I, I, I go through there, go by there, and it's and it's a it's an attractive development. It's on the water. They have a beautiful fleet of fishing boats. They have a yep. nice restaurant there. They have amenities. Yep. Everything. But there's a, I used to work with a guy who grew up in Manio. And he just kind of turned his nose up at that. Yep. That's, <laughs> that's it. a great picture on the front cover of your book because mm-hmm. uh, it shows it undeveloped before Pirate's Cove. Mm-hmm. That was the new bridge. I want to say that was 1992. And you can see the old bridge right next exactly. to it. Exactly. So crazy. Yep. Um, and I, I admire the place, and I think it's a wonderful place, and I'm happy for those people. But how did that get, you know, approved? Absolutely. When you consider it, it was basically sitting on wetlands. I mean... How come the rest of the wetlands aren't developed all up and down the beach, you know? I think, like so many cases, there are a couple pieces to that story. One is an appetite for risk. Yeah. The folks who developed it, that was very expensive. Number two, regulatory. And regulations aren't consistent. They change over time. So there are windows when regulation is considered more favorable, less favorable. You'll get different gubernatorial administrations. You'll get different approaches to environmental protection, environmental stewardship. And then you get folks like Mark Bassnight who believe very much in economic development. And I think a pro-development atmosphere existed during that time. And right. that's when I think you see, if you wonder, why does Manio have all the marinas? Yeah. There are none on the Outer Banks. Yeah. In terms of coastal, there aren't in Killua Hills, Nagshead, Kitty Hawk, right. Duck, Kerala. There's no place in Kerala to get a boat into. Yeah. The Whalehead Club, but that's a different story and not accessible in a practical manner. Right. And I think it was a combination of there was a risk appetite, 
there were the right people in the right time in the right place, and there was a regulatory environment that had a relatively narrow window to go push through some of those developments. Right? Happened in other places along the coast. If you look at, for example, some of the development in Moorhead City, right? some of the development in some of the other areas happened about that same time, and some of it was regulation. Do I think we'll see another Pirate's Cove? Not in 100 years. <laughs> and I think that That's interesting. the key to that will be Elizabeth City. We'll look for waterfront development in Elizabeth City as a barometer of, a, of the proverbial canary in the coal mine. So, for example, as we think about Elizabeth City has a lot of infrastructure, and it also has a lot of waterfront. And it also probably... Pre-existing development. Pre-existing. Sorry, there. And some raw land. So if we were to see developers come in and try to do waterfront development, Elizabeth City is probably the place that has some of those ingredients right now. Right. It'll be interesting to see if any of that takes hold. But Pirate's Cove, not that long ago, was marshland. And the original, as you know, the original Pirate's Cove was the ditch. That was the commercial boats launch. Is that right? And they'd go over to Salmonomies and would book charters out of Salmonomies. And that little tiny ditch next to the bridge where the public boat launch is. That's where they'd park them. That's where they would park the boats. And that, not that long ago, was Pirate's Cove. Wow. And look at what it's become today. But I don't see another development like that on the horizon in our working lifetime. Interesting, yeah. And regarding Elizabeth City... There's just something pretty about downtown Elizabeth City, and they, and they're working hard to try to revitalize the area, and uh, they're doing some neat stuff. So, they have infrastructure. So when you think about northeastern North Carolina in particular, and we think about if infrastructure is the future, Elizabeth City has infrastructure: Coast Guard base, a university, yeah. hospitals, community colleges, right? And they've got a lot of infrastructure going back even to the cotton mills and the lumber yards of, right. of another era. And that, to me, will be the bellwether for, as we continue to grow, are they able to use infrastructure to continue to grow? And if that infrastructure proves valuable, that, to me, becomes the instructive component for our infrastructure. Where do we spend a finite dollar that is demanded in a lot of other areas? Right. And I think there's a lot to learn there. Do you have any ideas or predictions how... uh the Outer Banks is going to continue to adapt or change over time. I mean, are we going to see less customer service and, and more, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I, I think it comes down, that's a great question. And the honest answer is none of us know. Yeah. If we've learned anything by yeah. the pandemic, it's that none of us know. If you and I would go back into 2019 and I was to say, you're not going to believe this, but there's going to be this pandemic and it's going to change forever the Outer Banks. and healthcare and all this, you wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. And, and you may have looked to go talk to someone else who you thought was more sane, and yet it happened. So I think the future of the Outer Banks comes down to two things. I think number one is the fundamentals. The fundamental, as long as we are a great place to be, within a day's drive of 60% of the population in the United States, the fundamentals are intact. That's a big thumbs up. So the environment's important. Right. A lot of folks think, oh, development comes at the expense of the environment. I'm actually on a different camp. As long as the environment's still remarkable, they will come. That's our field of dreams moment as a sports analogy. Number two is one of the biggest changes I think we've seen is the emergence of what I'll call a seasonal resident. We would describe that as a non-resident property owner, but that's changed. There are a lot more folks who now live here for a period of time. And that's a new population segment that is buying goods and services within our economy, oftentimes not working. 
So we do have a structural labor problem that I think is being exacerbated by that, but we welcome our seasonal residents. Long story short, we will have more population on a year-round basis than we've ever had, right. and that will be an impact, and how well we can absorb and sustain that in terms of a labor market will be critical. And the great quote there, Warren Buffett, price is what you pay, value is what you get. We have to be careful as a destination, as a place, as a visitor economy, that price doesn't keep going up and value keeps going down. Right. Most of us in our lives right now are paying more and getting less. Yep. Long term, that's not a sustainable trend line. So right. we've got to look for something to settle out there. And then the third part is I think it's our ability to come together and act collectively. We so often, uh, because the Outer Banks is this small collection of towns, we're not necessarily incentivized to think regionally. We're not necessarily incentivized to think about our next town over. The elected officials, rightly so, would say, I'm not elected by them. I'm elected by these folks to, right. to do what they said is important. Regionalism, to me, is the one-word answer there. Our ability to act regionally is, to me, the surest indicator that will build the future we want. Given that we cannot predict with any certainty what will happen, as this book proves, those, those brilliant early developers could not have foreseen what it would have become. But I think those are the three things that are out there. And you could call that fundamentals and technicals. Right. But I think if we can combine the fundamentals and the technicals, now we understand the market. Right. Nonprofits is a good story. All these, this very vibrant nonprofit community didn't exist that long ago. You know, the Outer Banks yeah. Community Foundation was 1982, and I asked Ray White, why did you wait that long to start the Community Foundation? And he said, you just don't understand. We didn't have any money. <laughs> I was going to say the exact same thing. And he's like, it yeah. was only in 1982 when some of us, yeah. folks like George Crocker, Ray White, Andy Griffith, and some other ones, had a little bit of money right. to set up this Community Foundation. And if you and I, once again, were to parachute into that room when they founded that and say, do you know in 2023 you'll have $25 million of assets in the Community Foundation to give away hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in scholarships and grants, they would have been speechless. Yeah. They never would have imagined that. Yeah. But now we look at we have so many nonprofits and great nonprofits. That whole nonprofit community to me is a reflection of a vibrant and generous population, yep. both fully resident and seasonally resident. And I think that's an important piece, almost linked, liken that to the conservation component. Man, we've got a great nonprofit sector yep. that did not exist that long. As a parent who's put three kids to the local high school here, they have a scholarship night, and uh, you, you see the nonprofits, you know, just giving back to the community Absolutely. with scholarships to these kids. It's it's so cool and so amazing. It is. I almost, awesome. I, I almost tell people you should just go every year and listen to that presentation because it's fantastic, you know? Oh, and I would encourage anyone listening, if you ever want to sit on a scholarship conversation, contact one of our nonprofits. They'll put you on a scholarship there, right? <laughs> and you, when you go sit in a room and interview scholarship candidates, I defy you to come out of that room with a dry eye. That's awesome. You, if, you, if you start to get pessimistic about our society, <laughs> go sit in some of those scholarship meetings. Right. And you will say, we are so blessed. Right. Do you think, um, let's see, the, the, the locals, do you think they just, uh, I feel like they've just adapted over, let's say, a century. Yeah. You know, it's just, they scratched out a living in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, you know, and just, yep. but they sl slowly grew. And, and then like, going back to your 
1986, you know, you know, they just adapted tenfold, maybe a hundredfold. Yeah. Um, do, do you think there's another adaptation, or, or or are we just beating that same question in the ground right now? Um, you, don't, think, you don't have to answer that if you don't want. No, to. it's a it's a great question, and I think to me, I go back to this this uh, and or idea. So many times we define a future of or. It will be this or it will be this. And I think it can be two things at the same time. Will it be the same? No. Will have we lost some of the really cool authenticity that made the Outer Banks so special to so many of us? Yes. At the same time, we have gained an economic engine that is the envy of most of Eastern North Carolina maybe even other parts of the state, if you think about the mountains as well. Yeah. Most folks would like to have that problem. So I think the Outer Banks historically has seen a really adaptive community. I mean, World War II, World War I, uh, the Civil War, Roanoke Island was the first island to ever be invaded by the United States Navy. Most folks don't know that. We think about Iwo Jima and Okinawa. The first island the United States Navy ever invaded was Roanoke Island. Wow. <laughs> and that wasn't that long ago. It wasn't like Rome in its thousands of years. So I think we've always been adaptive. That's the reason that so much of northern Roanoke Island is federal property. You think about how did the feds come to own most of northern Roanoke Island? Because they invaded it. The Outer Banks has always been independent. It's always been remote. It's always not necessarily had a North Carolinian mindset. It's always had an Outer Banks mindset. I don't see that changing. But do I think that we'll have to adapt to a new reality? Yes. We will lose some things, we'll gain some things. What we hope is that we gain more than we lose. And I think that's the most important question facing our community today. Are we losing things more rapidly than we're gaining them? And that, I think, is why we have to understand how we got here. Because if we don't understand it, that's the recipe to lose more than we gain. Right. On that note, um, the bypass, I spend a lot of time on the bypass, driving around, and, you know, some of the development I'm fine with, and some of the development eh, not so happy with. Yep. But I tell you, there's uh, a couple special places, three in particular: uh, downtown Manio, yep. downtown Wilson. Duck, and Jimmy Braithwaite, Corolla Village. Just absolutely three places I just love to go hang out, and I hope those places never dry up and go away because you know if if they stick stick around, I'll be fine. Well, we talk about zoning as destiny. And if you look at those three places, there's some pretty specific covenants and some pretty specific visionaries behind that. So it's no surprise that the Kerala Village is John Wilson, Outer Banks conservationist, and John Wilson was the mayor of Manio. That's not a random outcome. Yeah. And then I think there were a lot of folks who were thinking long term. Although in fairness, I don't necessarily blame the builders for some of the things that we see that we don't like as what we consider an Outer Banks aesthetic. Right. They're not doing anything wrong. They're doing exactly what they're allowed to do. And that, to me, is the importance of zoning. If zoning is destiny, those decisions were actually made, in many cases, 30 or 40 years ago. Right. And people couldn't have imagined what it would have become, so they just didn't think about it that much. And it's only now that we are essentially reaping what we sowed in some of these zoning things where we say, that's not Outer Banks, I wish that wasn't here. That was a zoning question, yeah. not necessarily a building question. Right. And I think we as a community, have, if we think about the outcome of that, some of these businesses on the bypass that we arguably wish could have been built differently, yeah. gosh, how do, we, how do we fix zoning so that that is defensible and we don't become 
a Virginia Beach right. or a Myrtle Beach right. or something like that. And you, every agree. every internet forum you see, we're more and more like Myrtle Beach. <laughs> How do we guard against that? Right, right. No, preservation. It's good. Yep. Um, well, the book is called Outer Banks Visionaries, Building North Carolina's Oceanfront by Clark Twitty. It's his second book. If you haven't heard of his first book, it's called Memories of the Kurtuk Outer Banks, as told by Ernie Bowden, a legend up there in Corova Beach. Uh, pick up the books, preferably at a local bookstore. We have some wonderful bookstores right here on the Outer Banks. Uh, I may have, I, I apologize, I may have bought this on Amazon. That's okay. So. <laughs> and I will say, uh, thank you for bringing that up. All proceeds from these books go to the Community Foundation. Is that right? Because that's what the people in them would have wanted. Good for you. So if you're going to tell a story about people and what they did, I think we have to be careful about seeking to turn that into a revenue stream because it's their life. Right. So I wanted to make sure that as we discuss their lives, it went back to those scholarships and grants that you and I talked about right. that help us with our quality of life as a region. Now, it's not a fortune. Spoiler alert. Yeah. But whatever there is, will go back into the Community awesome. Foundation. Any, any projects coming up we should talk about? No, I think there's always, there's so many stories that need to be told. And there's that great quote by Robert Caro who said, if you ask the right question, there's always more to the story. Right. So I continue to look for things that explain how this place came to be and the people that were in them and the environment that are out there. Um, so we're always thinking and we're always learning and listening and, and the discipline of writing. And I would always tell this to young people. It's not the product that is the triumph. It's the discipline. And you probably know that via your podcast. The discipline of forcing yourself to think and write clearly about the world around us, to me, is a very rewarding discipline. Right, right. Awesome. Thank well, you Clark, for the opportunity. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, I, I appreciate you sitting down with me today. My pleasure. Big thanks to Clark Twitty for sitting down with me. I love all the stuff that he's talking about and respect the research he did to put all the pieces together. I've always known the Outer Banks was a special place, but I never realized the perfect confluence it took to get us here. If you'd like to get a better understanding of how all these pieces came together, I highly recommend you buy the book. Be sure to visit one of our local bookstores here on the Outer Banks and pick up a copy for yourself. Some of my favorite Outer Banks bookstores are Downtown Books in Manio, Island Bookstore in Kitty Hawk, and Duck's Cottage in Duck. If you enjoy this podcast or this particular episode, please share it with a friend and hopefully they can enjoy it as well. Be sure to visit our website, treasuresoftheoutbanks.com, and sign up to get on our email list. When you're on the list, I send out an email every Friday and you can find out what's going on, things to do, where to go, and other observations. Until next time, make it a good one.